Well, this morning we're talking, starting about talk about the goodness of God. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, <clears throat> and all that He does, all that God is and does, is worthy of approval. Psalm 100, verse five: For the Lord is good; His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Or Psalm 106, verse 1, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So what does it mean that God is good? Um, there was a famous article by a philosopher once saying you couldn't really define good. It was just a, it was a, it was a quality couldn't be broken down into anything else. I think what is good is something that's worthy of our approval. And when we realize that God is good, then there's something in our hearts that kind of goes forth toward God and says, yes, that is right. I approve of that. That is good. Uh, God, uh, who God is, is, is good, is worthy of our approval. Um, and so we get these expressions in the Psalms, like Psalm 34, 8, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It says we come into personal relationship with God. As we come to experience him, we approve of that. It, it is pleasing to us. It seems right to us who God is. He is, he is good. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. And then in terms of our lives, God's will is good. That is, being obedient to God and following his ways is good. Don't be conformed, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. And here, um, the older version said that you may prove. The Greek word, dokimatso, uh, it has this sense of you test it and in practice you discover that it works out to be good. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we start uh, in our lives living in a way that conforms to the standards in God's word, we find that we start doing what God says, and it works out well for us. That is, our lives start to go better, and... Um, we find that this is good, that it is a good way to live, it's right. Well, it's the way our Creator designed us to live. So um, we begin to think according to God's patterns, we begin to live according to God's patterns, speak according to God's patterns of life in His Word, and then that by that we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, and then uh, also in our lives, we have things to give thanks for. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we go back to the definition. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. That means in our thinking of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil in the universe, we shouldn't ever put something higher than God and say, oh, God, you didn't do what was good in this situation. There's, I have a better standard. I can prove that you did wrong in something. We should never do that. But God himself in his own being, he is the highest standard of good. And we test our ideas of what is good by conformity to God's character. 
And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. And so we should, uh, when we read of God's character in the Bible, we should say, yes, that is good. It's what it ought to be. And we read of his actions, we should say, oh God, how wise, how good you are in what you do. Now, I just ask this question, what if God were not good? What if there, what if there was an all-powerful creator of the universe, ruler of the universe, who was not good? If God were not good, well, would you delight in him? No, you couldn't. You, you, wouldn't, you couldn't delight in someone evil. Would you want to worship him if he was not good? I don't, I don't think you would. You wouldn't want to worship him. How could you worship someone who's not good? You wouldn't want to anyway. You could be forced to maybe, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be anything in your heart that would want, you would want to worship him. Would you want to praise him? No, I don't. If God were not good, you wouldn't want to praise him, would you? You'd say, that's not right. I, I can't praise something that's bad. You wouldn't freely praise him. So when we think about that, we see then that... Um, thanks, Daryl. We see that when we reflect on God's goodness, it should cause us <clears throat> to have a spontaneous response of, of thanks and praise and delight because it's right to delight in something that is good. And God is ultimately the highest good. Am I making sense here? <clears throat> I'm not sure if I'm making sense here. I'm not sure if I see you awake on your... Ev. <laughs> I'm not talking about you. You are very awake, Evan. You are enthusiastic about the refreshments, and I am enthusiastic about refreshments, and I think refreshments are very important. I hope everybody else signs up for them. Okay, Ev. Yep. In your book, uh, Systematic Theology, uh, I, I wish I were prepared today with the correct references, but I've read about in in somewhere in there about uh, your references to the Lord doing evil ah. and the scripture references to that. Yep. And is is he capable of doing evil? And okay. when he does that, is he still good? Okay. Um, Ev was asking about a reference that I had quoted um, about God doing evil. It isn't quite that. Um, I think God does create disaster or calamity, creates hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that. Um, ultimately, that's consistent with his goodness, but that's a hard question when we get to the question of God and evil. I don't think God ever does evil. Um, every good and perfect gift comes down from the... Let's see. God cannot be... Let's see, in James 1... Mm, um, that no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He can't even be tempted to do evil. So he never, never himself does evil. But does, once there is sin in the world, does God create judgment that comes on sin? Yes. And is that sometimes calamity? Yes. 
there's a scripture in the Old Testament I remember that you referred to that he I don't know what the original Greek or Hebrew yeah. relation is, but it says. Yeah, I, the Lord, create evil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how much do I want to get into this right now? It's, um, well, I'll tell you a little. It's Isaiah 45 7, and if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to that. Isaiah 45, 7. Start with verse 6. I I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. That's what my... That's what my version says here now, create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Now, what do other versions say there? Someone have a New American Standard? Isaiah 45, 7. The New American Standard says calamity. And what about the NIV? Disaster. Okay. The, the Bible version that I was using when I wrote the Systematic Theology book had the word evil here. I make well-being and create evil. The King James says evil. And the New King James says calamity. Okay, so now I'll tell you a story about this verse. The Hebrew word here is ra, R-A apostrophe, so it's like ra. <laughs> kind of that kind of pronunciation, ra. And R-A or R-A-C-H, ra. That word is used, oh, I don't know, 100, 200, lots of times in the Old Testament. And sometimes it just means evil, evil. And sometimes it means natural disasters like calamity and things. So when I was on the translation committee to revise the Revised Standard Version, which I had quoted in this book, I was thinking, well, let's just leave it. It's the word that's commonly used for evil. And... We may have to work at explaining how God creates evil. It doesn't say, even there, it doesn't say he does evil. Okay, but it would say create. But Paul House, an Old Testament member of our 12-member translation committee, kept coming back to this. He said, it's just so troubling to people and makes so much difficulty in understanding. And there's a principle in translation. If you have a, a word, a Hebrew or Greek word, and it has like three or four different meanings, you don't always have to choose the hardest meaning. Okay? And couldn't it also take this other sense of calamity or disaster or destruction? Because sometimes it means that, and sometimes it means evil, and it's, a little, it's kind of a context question on how to decide. So he didn't persuade us the first day, but the next day he came back to it. He said, guys, I just am still troubled about leaving what the King James had and the Revised Standard Version had, I, the Lord, create evil. And then the rest of us listened to him more and said, yeah, Paul, you know what? Calamity or disaster is also a proper translation for that word. And it creates a lot less difficulty for people in kind of processing how it works. So why not translate it calamity? And that's what we did. We changed it to calamity.
I think no matter which way we go, and I will get to this in eight or ten weeks when we deal about the question of God's relationship to evil and the world, no matter which way we go, I don't want to give up on a very strong view of God's sovereignty and direction of the whole world and everything that happens. There is some kind of relationship between God and evil, but defining that is one of the hardest things that I ever do in teaching theology. God never, God's goodness means that he never himself does evil. Can he send the evil Babylonians against the Israelites to judge them? Yes, because he does. He, he sends, can he direct the evil Romans and the Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus so that they crucified Christ? Yes. So there is some way in which God's sovereign oversight of the world, though he never does evil himself, he sometimes can use evil to bring about good purposes. Does he create it? Um, I haven't changed that little section in my systematic theology. It's in chapter 16 on the doctrine of providence. I'm on chapter 12 now. I will get there, and I won't run away from it. Um, But I I guess for now, I want to say God never does evil. He certainly has oversight and sovereignty over evil. And I believe sometimes, and I believe he also uses evil for his good purposes. But it's still evil, and we should never think it's good. And it's it's a cause of sorrow, and um, we should never approve of it. And we should never seek to use evil for good. That's the way where God is different from us. I don't know if that helps. He can, but we can't. Can, but we can't. I'm, that's jumping way ahead, and that's just a real short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's really exactly right on the topic. If there, how can God be good if there's evil in the world? And everybody has to give some answer to that, okay? Um, and there are different answers. And my answer is it's still under his control. And somehow, well, we'll get, we'll get to that later. That's the hardest part about God's goodness, though. What happens when evil things happen? So, good, great question. What's your name? Beth, guess what? There's a microphone. Um, I was just thinking, could you correlate it to a parent spanking a child? Someone watching it might perceive it as evil, not knowing the background behind it. It all depends on the intention and the maturity in which it's used. Right. There is painful discipline that God brings into our lives, and there is an analogy there. The parent-child analogy is really helpful in understanding God's relationship to us many times. So, yeah, thank you. Well, this could go on for 14 hours, I know. Uh, let's take one or two more, and then, uh, and then I'm just going to... What's your name? Jerry Robison. Jerry. Uh, I just wanted to reference in... Uh, it's 1 Samuel 19.9, uh, where yep. it says that God... Uh, but an evil spirit from the Lord yep. came, came upon Saul, so he does have yep. control over evil yep. in that sense. Yeah, and that's one of those verses that... 
I look at and I say, okay, God had a purpose in this, in Saul's life and David's life, and somehow apparently sent that evil spirit to do evil. Now, God didn't do the evil, but he sent an evil spirit to do evil. So there's a, there's a distance from doing evil, but God himself is good, and ultimately he worked out for his greater purpose that David would be king. Okay, um, I see about six other hands. I think I have five attributes of God today. I am going to come to the question of God's providence and evil in about eight or ten weeks or so. We've got to get through attributes of God, then the Trinity, then creation, and then we come to providence. And I won't run away from that, and I'll give us a lot of time to talk about it. But if I let it go on anymore today, 29 years of classroom experience tells me it could go on for eight or ten hours, and I'm not going to do that right now. So so now... (laughs) Thanks, Bev, or Ev. Um, Good question. What if God were not good? We don't ever want to think that. Uh, He is good. How should we respond to God's goodness? And how do we respond to God's goodness? When we think now, the creator of the universe, who is our Savior and our God, that he is good, what does happen in your heart when you think God is good? How does it make you feel? John? Good? Good? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> okay. It, it, it brings a sort of joy to us, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness. I'm glad that the most powerful person in the universe, God himself, is good. Whew. That's a relief. <laughs> in fact, that's a sense of joy. And I think that we do respond to God's goodness with praise and worship. We think... Thank you, God. You are good. I am so glad that you are good. If you were not good, it would be it would be terrible, and I wouldn't want to praise you. But you are good, and so I do want to worship you, and I do want to praise you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Doesn't your heart just want to burst with joy that, that God is good? Oh, my goodness, that, that's, that's a wonderful thing. He's good. His steadfast love endures forever. So we should be careful never to think that something that God does in the Bible or in our lives is wrong or bad or evil. And, of course, the hardest challenge of any human being apart from Jesus, the hardest challenge of any experience in the whole Bible, is the story of Job in this regard. Because he lost his uh, seven sons and three daughters and all his uh, herds and flocks and uh, um, all this wealth. And it it was a tremendous disaster. And Job bows and worships and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then the story of the rest of the book of Job is the story of Job's struggle with this, where his wife is saying, curse God and die. And his friends are coming and blaming him. And the temptation is for Job to say, God, you are wrong. You did wrong. This is not fair. This is not right. But Job doesn't do that. He remains faithful 
and he doesn't say, God, you are wrong. You did wrong. And so that's the challenge. Even in our lives, even when we don't face difficulties as great as that of Job, but difficulties that come our way as they do in every single person's life in this age. There is, there is there's nobody whose life is free from hardship and difficulty. And so will we in faith decide to remember that God is good and to believe that he is good even when we don't always see how that works out right now? Romans 8.28 assures us, even though we can't see sometimes how it is true, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I don't know all of your lives and all of the details in your lives in this room. I begin to get a little glimpse into some of them, and I, in fact, just this morning, I was talking to someone who's had a very difficult situation in the last couple of months. And all of us from time to time have gone through hard situations, and probably there are many of you who are in pretty difficult situations right now, where things have not turned out as you would hoped. There's been a disappointment, there's been a hardship, there's been um, just some difficulty in health or sadness with a loved one or something. And the question is, will we still believe God's word to be true, that he is good, that his will for us is good and acceptable and perfect, and that he will ultimately be true to his promise that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So that's number one. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying I think that's the path the Bible wants us to walk, and I think that that is the path of great reward. And then two, God's goodness calls forth worship, and joy from our hearts. God's goodness is thus the solid foundation for all real joy in the universe. Why do I say that? Why can we be happy I think because there are some things in the world that are truly, deeply, ultimately worthy of approval. And when we approve of things, we take delight in them, we rejoice in them. So when we look at creation, and it's beautiful, or you look at something good that someone does, just some act of kindness, some time with friends, some some good thing that someone does, or just eat some refreshments before class in the morning, and you say, that tastes good, and you're happy in it, and you delight in it, you say, that's good. That part of creation is good. Those people are good. That action is good. I approve of it. I delight in it. There's something in our heart that goes forth and has joy in it, and I think that we can have security in doing that, knowing we're not just deceiving ourselves or fooling ourselves, because ultimately, way back behind every little individual act of goodness is a creator God who is good and has made the world in such a way that we can enjoy it and approve of it and delight in it. 
so that we don't have to think, oh, maybe I'm fooling myself and it's all, all a big deception at the end and I wouldn't really be right in being happy. I would just be naive. But we can be justified eternally in feeling happy and good about things because God has made them and they reflect his goodness. And, and our, our deepest joy, I think our deepest joy then comes in worshiping God who is infinitely good. Can you ever praise him enough? See, when you start thinking about how good God is, his goodness is infinite. Well, then how could you praise him infinitely? You can't. We're not capable of that. And that, that there's some joy in that. We can't praise him enough to do him justice, but the joy we have in delighting in him is a special kind of joy that will never end. 1 Peter 1.8, I don't have it up here on the screen, but it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that is inexpressible is a joy that you don't even have to have words to express. So God's goodness is the solid foundation that lies behind her, that's way deep underneath all the other joy we have. And it means that our joy is, it's true, it's right. It's not fooling ourselves. And then, number three, we should ourselves do good and thereby imitate the goodness of our Heavenly Father. So Paul says in Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But everyone, even non-believers, do good as you have opportunity. That's how Christians should be. We aren't, a, we aren't a religious system that says people should just go about doing evil and gaining power or just harming or murdering other people or something like that. We're a religion that says do good to others and especially those of the household of faith. So there is a response to God's goodness. And then this is completely different from worldly moralism. That is, what you get in secular education today, I think, is a problem. If you can't talk about God in schools and you can't talk about religious values, how can you get children to be good? And I, I took this economics class a couple years ago at ASU, and the one day the professor brought in an ethics professor to talk to freshmen and sophomores at ASU and me, sitting in the class, <laughs> about why be good in business, and why do right. And, and the ethics professor, uh, uh, I've forgotten her name, but uh, she's kind of well-known, she basically ended up saying, because you'll get caught if you don't, if you don't do right. Well, that's just, that's what's called utilitarianism. It brings good results. These are weak arguments. Do good to others because it's the best thing to do. That's just a circular argument. Do good to others because what goes around comes around. And you know what students are sitting there thinking? But what if it doesn't? <laughs> Maybe I can get away with it. Or do good to others because it makes you feel better. Well, what if it doesn't? What if I cheat somebody and it makes me feel... You see, people rationalize all sorts of ways of not doing good. These, this kind of, what I call superficial moralism, doesn't have any anchor or grounding in the character of God. And so it just, it doesn't work. It's a band-aid on, on, that needs deep surgery. It's not, those things, those are not reasons anchored in God. Therefore, they're weak reasons. But as Christians, we say, do good because God is good. 
And there's no greater reality in the universe. And so you're supposed to imitate him. And he's pleased with that. Well, that's a deep reason for doing good. So that's God's goodness. It calls forth worship and joy from our hearts. Okay? Um, I, I'm just, I, I was thinking, I decided not to bring this, but I think I'll just bring it up. Um, many of you know, and most all of you, unless you're new in the class, that um, just about about 11 months ago now, our our son Alexander's uh, wife was was killed in an auto accident um, after they'd been married just three months and was killed instantly. And what we found afterward was that when uh, uh, John Piper, I, I phoned him and he went, his pastor in Minneapolis, and he went was with Alexander there at the hospital. But Alexander prayed there aloud when he went to see Rachel's body. And he prayed this prayer from Job. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that was nothing. I mean, that was just, that was a spontaneous prayer of his heart. And we were so thankful for that. And that's a, that's a hardship that isn't, I've never experienced anything near to that kind of sadness or sorrow. Um, but there was an expression of faith that just was grounded deep in the character of God, just a knowledge that somehow God is still good in spite of a great, great tragedy and sadness. And uh, sadness that will never in this lifetime completely go away from Alexander's heart. But we are seeing Alexander's faithfulness to God and God blessing and rewarding that faithfulness increasingly as time goes by, and, and we're so thankful for that. I'll tell you more about it as it goes on. But, but that sense of God's goodness is so important to the whole Christian life, isn't it? It's just, it's just, it's underneath everything that God is good and we can trust him and delight in him and praise him. Okay, number two, God's love. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. Now, uh, anyone does not, who does not love does not know God because God is love, says 1 John 4, 8. And John 17, 24 uh, Jesus talks about the fact that the Father loved him. God the Father, he, say, he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. There was love between the members of the Trinity, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, uh, before the world was created. And so this love is God giving of himself to others. God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. There God gives of himself. He's going out toward others. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see this self-giving again in, uh, um, 
God sending Christ, giving, there's a give, and Christ himself gave himself for us, there's an evidence of his love. So God's love is somewhat different from God's goodness, but they are related. God's love has to do with his giving to others, going out of himself to do good for others. And love is, of course, something good. But goodness, we're focusing on who God is in himself. And then his love, we're focusing on how he gives of himself uh, to do good for others. So they're, they're related. But now, how can we love God? He doesn't need anything from us. I can understand him giving to us. I can understand us giving to others. But how do we give to him? Well, certainly by giving him praise and approval in our hearts. And this is, in a way, giving of ourselves to him. And so, well, God's love is uh, giving of himself continually uh, for others. So our giving of ourselves to him in praise is a way we love him back. And Hebrews says, book of Hebrews says, uh, that it talks about the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so our worship to him is, um, is an offering to him. It's something that he delights in. And then we love him by obeying him. Now I'm going back to your parent and child. And What's your name over here who told me about parents spaking children a few minutes ago? Bev? Beth? Beth? Yeah. And so here's another, just like... Uh, Mommy, Daddy, how can I love you? Well, you might start by doing what I tell you. Um, uh, so uh, when we obey God, it is a way that we show our love to him. So 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not, they're not weighing us down. They're not oppressive. They're good for us. But if we love him, we keep them. And then we imitate God's love, first by loving God. So I'm going through these attributes. How do we imitate God's knowledge? By gaining knowledge. How do we imitate God's wisdom? By being wise. How do we imitate God's goodness? By being good to others. How do we imitate God's love? Because he wants us to be like him, to be conformed to his image. We imitate God's love, first by loving God in return, and second by loving others in an imitation of the way that God loves them. So he said, you shall love the Lord your God, that's first, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like on, is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, 1 John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's an idea of imitation of how God acts. So we should be giving of ourselves to others. Now, that is a huge challenge because in my heart, I just want to kind of pull into my shell and just be. Why do I have to go and be nice to other people? Do you ever feel that way? Um, <laughs> it takes effort to go be nice to other people or care for them or do something good for them. But uh, God works in our hearts. He changes our hearts. He gives us in our hearts a desire to love other people. And then we find as we do that and we care for other people, wow, it gives us joy as well. And why? Because God made us that way. We're happy acting like he acts and doing good for others. And uh, I hear the announcements that Bob makes, and I find that a whole lot of you are doing good for other people uh, here in the class. And that's what it should be in the Christian life. And we see that in our home fellowship groups and things, too, that people do good for one another. We care for one another. But that's a challenge for our lives. Mercy, grace, patience. I want to see if I can get through my goal today of doing five attributes. We've done goodness, we've done love, 
Now, mercy, grace, patience are mentioned often together, and so we kind of treat them together in the Bible. Uh, Bob? Yeah? No? Okay. Scratching your head. Okay. <laughs> Just, <laughs> ever you put your hand up, I'll call on you right away. Okay. All right. <laughs> I didn't hear that. That's probably just as well. Okay. God's mercy, patience, and grace may be seen as specific aspects of God's goodness. So, you know, in studying God's attributes, we can have sort of broad categories, just goodness, but then we can break goodness down into certain ways in which God's goodness is manifested. And mercy is one of them. The Lord passed before, and, and patience and grace and patience and grace, and they're mentioned together. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, there's the first two, slow to anger. That's patience. Isn't it? Okay. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So now let's talk about the uh, those individual characters. First characteristics. First, God's mercy means God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. Why do I say that? It's because where mercy is is uh, is is singled out in the Bible, it's often because of people in great need or in distress. So David said, "I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man." And Matthew 9.27, these two blind men are crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. They're blind. They need healing. They're in distress. So uh, this is an attribute of God that often for those in deep distress, in deep need, God specially shows his concern. And that, uh, that when we focus on that particularly, it's, um, it's called the attribute of mercy. Now, in terms of imitation... I just have to ask you, what is your instinctive attitude toward those in distress and those in need? Well, it's their own fault. They created that problem. They can get themselves out of it. That isn't what we would call mercy. <laughs> okay, and uh, that's just a, a little check on our hearts because I think at times, uh, yeah, people do dumb things and they get themselves in trouble. Um, but we do dumb things, and we get ourselves in trouble, and God shows mercy to us. So that's a reminder to imitate that attribute. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And I didn't write it up here, but sometimes people refer to it as unmerited favor. You, you don't deserve God's goodness, but he is good to you anyway. So... Uh, goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And we see that, first of all, in forgiveness of sins and in our justification. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, do we deserve anything? No, we deserve judgment. We've sinned. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, God's grace comes to play into play when we don't deserve forgiveness or justification, but he gives it as a gift we didn't deserve. Romans 11:6. if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you earn your salvation, you deserve it, then it's not grace. Grace is to those who don't deserve it. And so grace is entirely God's choice to give. We have no right to demand it from him. I think in a society that has such um, kind of a mistaken idea that God just naturally has to love everybody, that we take God's grace too lightly and we assume, oh, we deserve grace. Once you start thinking that, it's not grace anymore. You, you see what I mean? If you think you deserve it or God has to give it to you or something like that, then you've missed the point. You don't deserve it, and he doesn't have to give it, and that's what makes it grace. So, Exodus 33:19, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You know, not everybody's going to be saved. There is a hell. And the fact that not everybody is saved is a very stark reminder to us that we can't presume on God's grace. It isn't automatic. We did not deserve God's grace. We did not deserve forgiveness, and we do not deserve it. But he gave it to us anyway because of his choice. We can't presume on it. And when we talk about grace, oh, we could take hours to talk about grace, but I'm just kind of hitting some highlights here. There is only one human attitude appropriate as an instrument for receiving unmerited grace. Unmerited grace. And that attitude is faith, because faith is the opposite of depending on myself. We're not justified by being joyful, because then we just try to make ourselves happy something we could do. We're not justified by being kind because then we could go around trying to be kind enough to other people. We're not justified by being peaceful because then we just go around saying, mmm, mmm, all day long and trying to make ourselves peaceful. There are all sorts of attitudes of mind <laughs> that aren't the way you get saved or you get the gift of salvation. Um, because all of those would involve trying to do something. But there's only one attitude in all the range of human attitudes that is exactly the opposite of trying to earn something yourself. And that is faith. Because faith isn't depending on yourself. Faith is saying, God, I can't do this. I can't save myself. I give up. I trust you. See, faith is depending on someone else. It's depending on God to make us right with him. And so faith is the opposite of depending on myself. And Paul says in Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. These two are really related. If grace is favor that we don't deserve, then faith is trusting in God to give us that favor that he has promised. If he hadn't promised it, we wouldn't have any basis for thinking uh, we would receive it. Sandy? Um, Wayne, I, I, I know you're describing faith as an attitude, uh, a response on our part, and, and I know that it is, but isn't it also a gift? Well, I just 
I said, I know that um, you're describing faith as the appropriate response to God's grace, and certainly it is, but isn't it also God's gift to us? Yeah. In, Ephesians, <laughs> uh, in Ephesians 2, 8, where it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That, I guess the antecedent to that is the faith, not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, so that we respond, it, it seems to me in a way, what we do in response is surrender to all that God has done because the grace is God's gift and even in a sense our faith to reach out and receive that gift, there's an element, and I, I realize this falls in the category of mystery and we mm -hmm. can't plumb mm -hmm. at all. No, I agree completely, the Sandy. Depths of it. Um, but just if you would yeah, speak to yeah. how I don't it's know where our we'll choice, get, but yeah. God's gift too. Way down the road, if we live long enough, I will get to the question of saving faith and spend a morning on But I do think, yes, that God enables us ultimately to believe. Um, and uh, uh, Philippians 1, Paul says, For to you it has been given not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I think... Uh, that God gives us the ability to believe in him. And in Acts 16, talking about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said uh, by Paul. And so, um, Acts 14, Acts 16, I'm not sure. So, um, yes, I think that ultimately that is, uh, that we depend on him even for the ability to depend on him. Oh, that's amazing. How, what a paradox that is. Okay. Well, but still... It is a giving up and, and a surrender, a, a, um, a trusting, um, a yielding to God, and that's appropriate to something we don't deserve, which is grace. Isn't our whole life, then, a life of grace? And Paul wants the Corinthian church that tended to be a little bit proud and boastful because everything was going so well for them, he wants the Corinthian church to be humbled so they realize that they didn't deserve anything they have. He says to them, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, I've got a great sports ability. Well, where'd you get that? Well, I've got great personality. I get along real well with people. Well, where'd you get that? Who made you? Okay, so what, it, what do you have that you did not receive? And then Paul says, if you then received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it. And Paul himself, um, with the uh, incredible blessing that God gave to his ministry as an apostle, planting church after church after church throughout the Mediterranean world, and yet he can write in 1 Corinthians 15, well, the previous verse he said, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. That is, before he was a believer. And then he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I didn't deserve this. But God's grace came to me. I think we ought to be thinking that, too, about every blessing in our lives, about every good ability in our lives, about every successful effort at ministering to others in our lives. It's God's grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I didn't deserve it. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And then he says, look at this. He says, I worked harder than any of them. And then he says, just so you don't misunderstand, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. So even there, he looks at 
how God has empowered him. He says, that's by grace. I didn't deserve that. But God gave me grace. Three, under this subcategory of different kinds of goodness, last one and we'll be done, God's patience means God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time and his delight at seeing his plans for history unfold gradually over time. If you're looking at my systematic theology book or following along as we work through these attributes, I added this since the book was written, this idea of God working out things gradually. I'll explain that in a minute. I had just said patience in withholding punishment over a period of time. Well, there is that. The Lord passed before him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, God is slow to anger. People of Israel sin. He says, don't do that. But he doesn't punish them. They sin again. He says, don't do that. He doesn't punish them. He's slow to anger. Again, Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving in iniquity and transgression. But then look at this. But he will by no means clear the guilty. And so I put my little interpretation here. Slow does not equal never. Okay? Slow to anger, but it doesn't say never to anger. And Paul, in writing in Romans, warns people about presuming on God's patience. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? There's people going on in sin, thinking, hey, it's working out fine for me. Everything's going great. Life couldn't be better. This is a good life. Paul says, watch out. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to more sin? No. <laughs> I just want to see if you're awake. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, to turn from your sin. But he warns them, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So don't let God's patience make you think you will ever get away with it when you sin. That was Samson going out and trying to marry a Philistine, a Canaanite whom he should not have married, going and visiting a prostitute, living with Delilah to whom he was not married, and then just teasing her and saying, oh, if you do this, my strength will be gone. If you bind my hair, it'll be gone. If you tie me up with these fresh bowstrings, it'll be gone. Just playing, he kept saying, oh, I'm just getting away with all this stuff. I'm getting away with it. And Delilah said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He presumed upon God's patience. And the Philistines seized him. His strength was gone. They gouged out his eyes and put him in prison. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Colossians 3, Paul's writing to Christians. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He's writing to bondservants. <clears throat> I think he's warning them, don't steal from your employer. You may get away with it, but you won't get away with it. You see, the wrong, God knows. God sees. God watches. Or, conversely, 
Maybe your employer did you wrong. Your master didn't reward you or he treated you unfairly. Don't worry, God will settle all accounts. In that case also, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. We put confidence in God that he is fair. So though our sins are legally forgiven as Christians, there are still consequences in this life for sin sooner or later. And uh, a, a, a failure to understand that just grieves me deeply as far as the Christian world is concerned. We had Christian missionaries that we started supporting, praying for 21 years ago, came visit us this last week. They're in Uganda, been in Uganda as medical missionaries. And they're just, oh, so Wayne, Christians in Uganda, they lie? They get in government and they take money for themselves? And I'm thinking, Christians in the United States lie. <laughs> and they take money for themselves sometimes. And they shouldn't do it. So God's patient, yeah. But slow to anger doesn't mean never anger. And though we're going to heaven, there are consequences for sin. And so we shouldn't presume on God's patience. He's also just. He'll settle all accounts and things will be made right. God's patience means God's goodness. Oh, I'm right at the... Give, give me two more minutes here and we'll be done. Means God's goodness and withholding of punishment toward those who sin over time, and His delight at seeing His plans for history unfold gradually over time. This has just helped me understand the Bible a whole lot. Just one other little key: God does things gradually. Evidence number one: He took six days to create the world. Why didn't He just do it in one day? Pow! It's all there. He just enjoyed seeing it work out a bit at a time. Why didn't he send the Messiah? By giving Eve a son who would bruise the head of the serpent right there in Genesis 3. He promised a savior to come, but he delighted in seeing his plan work out gradually over centuries and thousands of years until when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So God did things at the right time. And Jesus is coming back at the right time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you. So God is not behind schedule in preparing for Christ's return. And we should be patient when God works gradually in our lives and in the lives of others, especially our wives and husbands. <laughs> Patience. Okay, patient. But I don't think patience means you should be enjoy being lazy or unproductive or bored. I just can't get there in terms of patience. God works gradually over time, and we should trust in his timing, but that doesn't mean do nothing. Being patient does mean trusting God to work over time, at the right time, in the right way. And that means not pushing to make something happen when God is not in it yet but waiting on God's timing and praying and being sensitive to God's timing. Okay? We made it. All right, here's the review. Goodness, God is the final standard of good. And all that God does is worthy of approval. We can enjoy him and rejoice in him. God's love, he gives of himself to others, and so should we. Mercy, goodness toward those in misery or distress. Grace, goodness toward those who deserve punishment. Patience, 
withholding of punishment toward those who sin over time and his delight in seeing his plans for history unfold gradually over time. All right, Bob, I hope we're not in trouble. I've gone a couple minutes over, and I still want to do a hymn if we can. Okay, just a quick reminder, we do need to set up the tables uh, for the class 100, 200, 300, and also did E.G. Barmore give somebody an envelope for me today? Okay, see Bob about that afterward. We're getting out of here on time all the time. I think I'm just going to do this hymn real quick, and we'll be and we'll be done. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>